scripture today comes from the book of John, 12th chapter, verses 27 through 36. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, and others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake and not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the precious word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Some of you can reflect on moments in history. These are very difficult moments where time seems to stand still, and when we reflect on those moments, we remember where we were. Some of you know exactly where you were on Friday, November 22nd, 1963, when John Kennedy was assassinated. You know the place and the moment you heard the news. For others, January 28, 1986 is etched in your memory. The space shuttle Challenger exploded as the world watched and perhaps made more popular because that schoolteacher, Krista McAuliffe, was on that ill-fated flight that blew up in midair. And for many of us, Tuesday, September 11, 2001, when I say the day, you know the place. You know where you were, you know what you felt, and you know what you saw. Perhaps when you made it to your screen, one tower was already compromised, and you watched in horror as a plane flew into the second. Those moments take your breath away. They extract from you life. They're horrifying. They're difficult. They're shocking. I share those because there is a word here that is quite difficult to translate. It's better illustrated than translated when John writes that Jesus was troubled. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. He means his soul is horrified. He is in shock. Disbelief 
sudden horror. It, it's the kind of emotion that comes from an assassination of a leader, from the death of a school teacher and other astronauts. It is the emotion that is evoked when you realize 2,977 people died, some of whom jumped from many stories high to try to save their lives on 9-11. And Jesus is conflicted as he's praying. If you have ever wondered what to pray, you're in good company because Jesus did too. If you've ever thought, I don't know what to say right now, Jesus struggled. Look at what he says. What shall I say? This is in front of a group of people that Jesus is talking to his father. Father, save me from this hour. Like, should I pray? Father, no, don't let this hour come. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Then Jesus prays the prayer, Father, glorify your name. So he's tempted to pray, Father, don't let me die. Father, don't let me be smacked through the face. Father, don't let me be stripped naked. Father, do not let the Roman soldiers take a whip with glass and stone and wrap it around my torso until my entrails are showing. Father, do not let me go through a mock trial. Father, do not let me be crucified. Father, do not let me die. But he doesn't. He prays in front of the crowd, Father, glorify your name. And God speaks. He doesn't speak interestingly enough to relieve Jesus' horror. He doesn't push the pressure release valve and say, uh, son, don't worry about it. You don't need to endure that kind of pain. He says, but for Jesus in response, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. What hour? That of beating and dying. So why does Jesus, why does the Father speak, and why does he not pull off of the plan? He does it to draw you to himself. As a matter of fact, in this longest week of Jesus' life, this is the last time we see the crowd. They'll be gone, and Jesus will be 1 to 12 with his closest allies, save one. Judas. He will spend time with them. And John, from here on, uh, the next time the crowd sees Jesus, he'll be in front with Pilate and they'll, they'll do what you know they'll do. They will yell, crucify him. So Jesus, who is like an ir irresistible magnet, makes one last attempt to draw them to himself. And he's doing the same with you today. But how? Number one, God draws by speaking. Then a voice came from heaven. 
an answer to Jesus' prayer, Father, glorify your name. And the voice is that of God the Father. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God the Father, speaking to his boy, speaking to his son Jesus, gives him his seal of approval. He's saying, Jesus, your life, your ministry, oh, I've so glorified you, and you've so glorified me. You've honored me. Think of the word glorified as that. So the crowd hears. They hear a voice come from heaven, and they cannot understand it. They don't get it. As you are watching online, as you will watch later, some of you, as you are sitting in this room, the reality is that I am doing a very foolish thing this morning. Scripture calls what I am called to do foolish. Preach. It borders on the absurd. Lest you put me on some lofty pedestal, I do not belong on it. I am simply called when I was 23 years old by God to stand in front of you. I had a different plan for my life. God called me to stand in front of you. Why? Because God in his grace uses crooked sticks to hit straight licks. And he uses someone like me to speak a word. And hopefully you may may think me foolish. Well, you're in good company. So does Scripture that I would stand before you and declare that God wants you. He is desperately in love with you. He is passionately committed to your salvation. So much so that he speaks The crowd hears the voice. Some think it's thunder. Others think it's an angel. Jesus says, this voice has come for your your sake, not mine. God isn't talking for my benefit. He's talking for yours. And they don't understand. So what does Jesus do? Does he give up, leave them hanging? No, he keeps talking. He is determined to help them understand what God meant by his words. If you've ever parented kids, you've done the same thing, right? You've explained it once and twice and 2,800 times. That's what parents do. You explain until they get it. But the parenting metaphor, I think, lacks. Why? Because explaining things so your kids get it is one thing, but this is life and death. So let's raise the ante a bit and change the metaphor. If you're a lifeguard and you are guarding A body of water, whatever it may be, a swimming pool, you're at the ocean, whatever it may be, you have one job, and your one job is to keep anybody under you from dying. You will rescue them. Jesus' words are that. Jesus' words are life in the face of death. Jesus' words are like that lifesaver that that lifeguard throws out to draw people to himself. And so on this Easter morning in 2021, when perhaps you have dressed your finest or maybe you're sitting at home with pajamas on and wouldn't want anybody to know what you look like, there is a God in heaven who knows where you are, who is reaching out to you this morning by his faithful word. And by his faithful word, he is drawing you to himself. Paul, writing in Romans 10, says, How will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless someone preaches? How will someone preach unless he is sent? 
Secondly, God draws by lifting up Jesus. Jesus continues, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So they don't understand God. They think it's thunder, or they think it's an angel. So Jesus interprets the Father. All of Jesus' life and ministry, he interpreted the Father. He brought God in human flesh to people in human flesh. And he says, judgment is coming. I don't know about you, but judges make me nervous and judgment makes me nervous. I've been on the wrong end of it more than once because of my driving record. It's true. When I was in college, I I just, for some reason, didn't know how to drive or I had other things to do, other things to occupy my time, so I didn't drive too well. I I still recall to this day, uh, down in Chesney, of all places, South Carolina, walking into that courtroom that day thinking, if he gives, if, if he does not, if he does not give me mercy, my insurance is wrecked. I paid all my bills as a college student, so I knew that would be on me. And somebody had coached me up and said, prayer for judgment. Just say prayer for judgment. And so I walk in there and uh, took my history book with me because I'm a nerd, and that's what nerds do is carry textbooks everywhere. I had to study Little did I know that that judge would say, what are you holding in your hand? Oh, it's a history book, sir. Uh, well, where do you go to school? Wofford College. Oh, that's where I graduated from. Yes. <laughs> like, I'm going to get something from this guy, right? We went to the same school. And he says, what can I do for you? I didn't know what to say. Prayer for judgment. <laughs> like, whatever that means, I'll pray. You judge well and we'll be done. And thankfully, he looked at me and told me to slow down. But while that is funny, something is about to happen. And since that point, every human being has been judged by it. And when you hear my words this morning, you have to make a decision. You can't check out. You can't say, no, I I can walk away. No. Why? You cannot look on the Son of Man hanging naked on a cross for sins you committed and be neutral. You can't do it. You either look at him and you say, I don't believe you. I'll do my own thing. I'll walk my own way. Or you look at him and you say, wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am, my sin put you there. I believe. That's what judgment does, isn't it? It decides this way or that. It matters not if you're a Republican or Democrat, rich or poor, white or black, educated uneducated, when you get to the cross, there is a bleeding Jesus whose eyes will pierce your soul 
And you will either say, I believe, I trust, or I don't. Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Well, honestly, I've read that so many times to me, being lifted up from the earth in our culture seems to be a pretty cool thing. You're elevated, right? You're exalted, and that, that's what we do to movie stars, and that's what we do to music. Uh, uh, that's what we do to musicians, and that's, that's what we do to athletes. But in their culture, to be lifted up from the earth, they knew immediately it meant his death. It meant it, he would die. And uh, this wasn't the first time Jesus had referred to this. Probably most everyone in the room knows John three sixteen, right? You could probably fill in the blank. For God so what? The, that he, his only begotten, that believes in him will not, but have what? Yeah. John 3, 14 and 15 give great context to 16. Jesus goes historical on them in John 3, 14 and 15. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, what happened in the wilderness? Numbers 21 gives that story. My summary statement of it was that Israel got hangry. Some of you get hangry, don't you? You don't get your food. You're not a happy person. You're hard to live with. And, and imagine that a million plus people, they got hangry with Moses. Why? Wow, they didn't have enough food and they didn't like the food they had and they started complaining against God and against Moses. And God took matters into his own hands. What did he do? He released snakes. And the snakes went through and they bit them. And people died. Imagine you're cooking Easter dinner. The family's a little impatient. They come into the kitchen. They get a little upset with you. You say, fine, fine. Go over to the corner, let the snake out the box. See how many people are left in the kitchen. But the reality is God released snakes. It was judgment. And the people died. And they came back to Moses and said, we messed up. We shouldn't have been doing that. that. That's called repentance, by the way. We messed up. Do something. Moses, please, and, and, and plead to God on our behalf. And so he pleaded with God on their behalf when they messed up. And God said to Moses, make a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and when people look at the bronze snake, if they have been bitten by a real live one, they'll live. And Jesus called himself or referred to himself as a snake on a pole. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I've always been puzzled by this snake story, and what has puzzled me by it was that the very thing that killed them was the thing that brought them what? Life. The thing that bit them was the thing they looked at to have Life. So, so how does that work on the cross then? Because uh, how is it that the very 
thing that trips you up could be the very thing that gives you life. Well, there's a verse over in one of the letters to uh, the Corinthians that says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when Jesus hung on that cross that day, the thing we tend to focus on is the physical suffering that he endured. But could I say to you something, church, this morning? Could I say to you who are joining us outside of this room that the most intense suffering Jesus endured that day on the cross was the guilt and the shame for all of the sins that you and I have ever committed. They fell on him that day. Those sins weighed heavily on him that day. Take the guilt of all of your sin. Multiply it by all the millions of people and all the guilt of all their sin. And in one horrific moment, that was on Jesus. One moment. And he cried out, why have you forsaken me? And the people know when he says he's lifted up, he's going to die. And they don't get it. And they say, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, the Messiah. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus knows, well, they didn't get God's voice from heaven. Now he's told them he's like that serpent. They know that story. That's in their history. Uh, One more try. God draws by shining a light. Jesus looks at them and he says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Probably quite a few of you have been to Limville Caverns. I went when I was in elementary school on a field trip. And the way they did it then, not sure how they do it now, that was a long time ago, is we walked in. We saw, then they told us to stand still, and they did what? Turned out the lights. Now, before they turned out the lights, they explained to us that somewhere nearby was what they called a bottomless pit, a pool. And, uh, of course, it has a bottom, but it's so deep, right? It's just super deep. And if you fall into it, uh, what will you do, class? You will what? Die. Right? You're you're a goner. So they tell you that and then turn the lights out. I mean, wonder how many people have had counseling. Right? What happened to you when you were a kid? Went on a field trip. Been afraid of the dark and deep places ever since. So they turn the lights out, and there you're standing, and you cannot see your hand in front of your face if you've done that. Like, you could hold your hand up and... The only reason you know it's there is because it's attached to your body. Sin is both like that darkness and that bottomless pool. If you live in it, you'll die. You'll stumble. I know we live in a culture that minimizes sin and maximizes personal choice, alternative lives and lifestyles, alternative points of view. I do not stand before you this morning to be popular. I do not stand before you to give you an invitation 
on the most painless journey you'll ever walk on. I stand before you to call you to a Savior who says that the world is dark and sin will kill you. And while you have light, walk in it. But Jesus changes the metaphor. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons, we would add daughters of light. So it's not like Jesus is putting together an army of lot bearers, sabers that are bright, and we, no, no, it's family. Family. Brothers, sisters. That's why when Alan Michael's baptizing, he looks at a child and calls her sister. Because she is. We're family. I think I get this most when I consider my trips to Africa, to the bush of Senegal. Darkness prevails there. It's a mixture of animism. Think rabbit's feet and cow tails on the end of, think Haiti. If you've been to Haiti, it's very much like that in Islam. But tucked away in a village, about two hours off the beaten path by a quiet sandy road is a church pastored by a dear friend. His wife's name is Esther. And they love the, the people in their village and now have planted a church in the neighboring one, shining the light. But it wasn't always like that. You see, Pastor Cherdna lived in the city. To move to the bush is huge. There's no electricity out there. There aren't the conveniences of life, but Esther, she's from Gatir, that little village. And Esther, when she was a teenager, stumbled badly in the darkness, so much so that she was possessed by demons. They owned her body. Unless you think that's a fanciful story, I think we are able to mask our demons in the United States quite well. One day, God sent a preacher to Gatir, but the demons in Esther's body told her that the preacher was coming. She readied herself with a knife. And when the preacher made his way to the village of Gatir, Esther was waiting, this teenage girl. Her parents had carried her to witch doctor after witch doctor to no avail. She grabbed that knife. She jumped on his back. And she pulled it to stab him and end his life. He did what you and I would do, ran for his life, leaving behind his Bible. And God, who is the ever-drawing, magnetic God, 
was crazy about Esther enough that she would open up the Word of God and God's Word is no match for the demons. Amen? And Esther got saved. Wow. Pastor Cherdna comes in to preach and they fall in love. And he ends up moving to Gatir to pastor a church that I've had the distinct honor of preaching to under a mango tree and you've given and now they have a building. Once I was there and there was a little boy writhing in pain, stomach issues, our doctors who had gone with us had treated him the pain would not subside, and they called for the pastor. And that meant me and Cherna. We headed over behind that clinic and found that boy lying on a table behind the clinic in that hot, beating-down sun of the desert. And I was praying all the way, Lord, they're desperate. They've called me. I didn't know that Esther was praying all the way. A different prayer. We get there, and Esther steps in, and she lifts up the shirt of that little boy enough to see beads tried around his uh, stomach put there by the witch doctors. And she turned, and her face completely changed, and her countenance completely changed, and she looked at the father and went, <laughs> and I'm like, what in the world? So I leaned over to the interpreter and said, what did she just say? He looked at me with a smile on his face, and he said, she looked at that dad and said, listen, you get Jesus or the beads. If you want me to pray, cut them off. If you want the beads, take your boy and go. Wow. Knife came out. Beads came off. Esther's head bowed. I did not know the language, but the Spirit moved on that little table. Why? Because Esther's my sister, and Cherna is my brother, and we're family. She's a daughter of the light, and she once groped blindly in the dark. You say, Jerry, what do I do? I'm assuming that your needs aren't near as pronounced. Maybe they hide underneath, but your sin is real. And you've stumbled this week or this year in the dark. If I could call you by name and draw you, I would. I've walked in the light long enough to know I'd rather walk through the fire in the light as to walk through the cool of the day in the dark. Last night, 
we did what my wife insists we do every year on Saturday night before Easter. I love Wendy. She keeps me down on the ground. She says, I think way down there, she keeps me up here. We dot Easter eggs. All adults. We're old. Our kids are big. We sat around a table and dot Easter eggs, and then we moved to the living room, and Hannah asked me to sing a song, and if this keyboard is on, this, I'm going to sing it, and I know we got another service. that put you on the cross. Please forgive me. Come into my heart. And save me. I'm tired of the dark. 
like that, Jesus, you come in and live in them. May your grace be done and at work in their lives. And all God's people say, this morning, if you don't know Jesus or if you need to pray, I'll be in that next steps room with others. We'd love to pray for and with you. And for what God has done and is going to do, we're going to end this service as we began it. Would you stand and let's sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise